Hey, bookworms. Welcome to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. I am so glad you are here. I am the Picky Bookworm, and I love bringing recognition to indie and self-published books through book reviews, proofreading, and podcasting. Every Saturday, I get to talk to a member of the writing community, from book bloggers to authors and even other podcasters like myself. I'll include a link to my website where you can leave a comment with your thoughts on the show or questions for the author that I may not have gotten to. You can also find information on how to sponsor this podcast. Ready? Grab your tea, wine, or laundry, and let's get to it. This episode is sponsored by Caroline Fleur. She wrote the book Destiny and Other Dilemmas. You can find it on Amazon in Kindle format and paperback format. Here is the blurb. Brooke Stern seemed to have the perfect life until she didn't. After an unexpected turn of events that shook her marriage of 15 years, she must navigate her new normal as a single independent woman. Juggling her son's food allergies, her demanding career, and growing interest in a mysterious man, she's determined to restart her life and find a clear path ahead. When she finally reclaims her courage, she is confronted with the harsh consequences of her choices. Any step forward is a potential risk as she tries to make the best decisions for herself and the future of her family. That is, if destiny doesn't step in and decide for her. Based on that, I think I need to own that book as well. Um, I will include a link to the Amazon so that you can purchase this book and support the author just as the author has chosen to support this podcast. Thank you, Caroline, and thank you, Chris. Uh, You can find her book in the show notes as well. Thank you both for supporting the Piggy Bookworm. Today's episode is sponsored by Papillon Dupair Publishing. Papillon Dupair Publishing is a niche publishing label that works with authors of commercial and literary fiction, both established and new. P2P is a mission-driven, aiming to bring to market quality work often overlooked by mainstream publishers. Papillon Dupair works a dual model, publishing both traditionally and through an agile hybrid system that guarantees publication for independent authors. Papillon Dupair works meaningfully with writers on their writing journey. Ask them for any testimonials regarding how their team might be able to help you on your writing and publishing journey. Let their authors, clients, and associates tell you. They have a Facebook writers group. They have a website. Uh, you can see that at Papillon du Pair. That is P-A-P-I-L-L-O-N hyphen D-U hyphen P-E-R-E dot com. And you can submit a query to them or email them with any questions. Thank you so much. Let's make it happen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. I am here today with Bradley Harper. I am sure that you have seen, if you follow Papillon Dupair Publishing, I'm sure you've seen The Bells of Christmas 2. It is a book that Bradley and um, his publisher, Papillon Dupair, have put together uh, last year and this year. It is a, an anthology of sorts. It is a collection of short stories that they sell and donate the profits to 
uh, St. Jude's Hospital, which is a super, super, super cool charity. is actually my husband's favorite one. And so we are going to get to talk about that book and some of his other books and the fact that he looks like Santa Claus. So we are, we're going to get into it. So grab your tea, grab your wine, grab your laundry, Caroline, and let's get into it. Hello, Bradley. Yes, I mentioned that you look like Santa Claus. Um, I, I think that is, I think this is probably the coolest Christmas interview guest, guest host, you know, whatever you want to call it, probably that I could have picked for Christmas week is to have someone who looks like Santa Claus on the show. I just think that is super cool. Um, I had contacted you uh, to come on the podcast. I was not actually planning on doing um, the podcast this week and next week and coming back, just taking you know Christmas week completely off and coming back mm-hmm. on January 8th with some brand new guests. And when I found out that you were free, I'm like, okay, we got to do a Christmas podcast episode so that we can talk about The Bells of Christmas 2, which was adorable. I enjoyed it very much. Um, I'm very, very, very glad that I was able to uh, purchase that. Yeah, Jay uh, with Papillon Pair, it was so funny. Um, he did a special bonus Ask the Publisher episode with me uh, about a month and a half ago. Right when Bells of Christmas 2 was com- was being released, it was on pre- pre-order and I had mentioned that I was going to add it to my Christmas review list because I had been looking for, for Christmas books, uh, Christmas themed books to review for my blog uh, for the month of December. And he offered to send me a free copy. And I'm like, no, no, thanks, but no. I was like, first of all, I want to buy it. It's my husband's favorite charity. I would not feel right about taking a free copy. I understand that there are people out there that cannot afford to buy one, but they want to help out. They want to review. They want to bring recognition and publicize it. Books for me, because of the the small business that I run, books are actually a business expense. So for me, it was not not a, a cost issue. And so when I told him that, he looked at me, he was like, you know, that's probably the nicest rejection I've ever got. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no. I was like, I can purchase the book, so I'm going to. Um, and I here's your surprise. You and I were mentioning before uh, we hit record. I did not want to forget the surprise, um, but here's the surprise. I'm actually doing a giveaway of three copies of the bells of Christmas um, that I will be drawing for on Christmas Eve. So this Friday for all of the subscribers on my blog, three of them will win a copy of the bells of Christmas too. That no, I do not want you to send me a free copy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because it's, you know, and part of the reason that I'm doing that is Um, you know, one, again, there's people that, you know, yes, the book is only a dollar, but there are people out there that probably don't have that dollar to spare, especially this time of year. And, but yet they really want to read it. Um, Mm. so 
I, you know, I was thinking yesterday, I'm like, you know, I really want to do something to bring a little bit of extra recognition to the Bells of Christmas and the Bells of Christmas 2. Um, and, you know, I was trying to think of a way that I could do that and um, purchasing three copies. Um, they will be Kindle copies. They will not be paperback, unfortunately. Um, but I will be purchasing three Kindle copies um, and giving them away this week. So that is your surprise. Well, thank you very much. You're I, I, I hope you enjoyed it. The the novella, which is kind of like the centerpiece of the book, that's the first novella I've ever written. I've written some short stories, which I've sold, and you know I've got uh, two two uh, novels, but that's the first time I tried to write a a, a novella. And I looked at how many words was in uh, Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. I kind of used that as my my yardstick. You know what kind of word count uh, I should. I should try to, to to keep it close to, and so um, I, I hope I hope that story wor worked for you. That was the one uh, um, about Ben, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that was that one, and um, and I I'm having trouble. I'm not quite awake yet. I'm having trouble remembering titles, um, but I do remember the Sugar Plum Fairy redo. Um, and the one about Ben um, were my two favorites. Um, the the sugar plum fairy redo. I you know I'm just I'm kind of reading along, and you know enjoying the story and enjoying this sugar plum fairy and you know the fact that she's fighting nightmares, and then she meets this little girl named Clara whose godfather is a toy maker named Drosselmeyer, and I went. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, okay, this story just got so much better. Um, so anybody who is uh, who are fans of the Nutcracker will really enjoy that particular story. Um, I my job actually gave away uh, tickets to what they were calling the Nutcracker. Um, mm -hmm. it's actually that new one that they redid called Hope for the Holidays. I don't know if you've seen it. Go ahead. It's awful. It, I, <laughs> anybody who is old enough to remember the original Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker is not going to enjoy Hope for the Holidays. They changed too much. Mm. It frustrates me. And so when I, when they were giving away, I'm like reading through the email with like a fine tooth comb trying to find out, okay, is it actually the Nutcracker or is that that Hope for the Holidays crap? And it was Hope for the Holidays. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> free tickets. Yeah, that's great. I love going to the ballet, but I'm not up for that. So, um, so we, <laughs> I have rambled on for almost eight minutes. <laughs> With, we haven't even had a chance for you to really properly introduce yourself. Um, so real quick, um, give us just a tidbit about who you are, um, the titles of the books that you have written, ha ha, uh, <laughs> and um, just a little bit about what gave you the idea for starting the Bells of Christmas um, last year um, and continuing it with the Bells of Christmas this year, Bells of Christmas too. Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, my name is Bradley Harper. I'm a retired U.S. Army physician. Uh, I retired uh, after 37 years of active duty, first as an infantry guy, and then I went to medical school and came back in as a doc. 
<clears throat> I started writing at the age of 63 after I retired, and I've got two novels out. My first novel, uh, right here, there's the first one, which kind of, I hope you can see that, A Knife in the Fog. I, uh, in this one, I was a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes, still am, and so in my first book, I put Arthur Conan Doyle on the hunt for Jack the Ripper. Uh, with him, I have Professor Bell, who was uh, Doyle's professor of surgery at Edinburgh, and he was the inspiration of the character of Sherlock Holmes, and a woman named Margaret Harkness, who was also a real person. She was an author and suffragette and a social reformer. She was living in Whitechapel during the, the Ripper murders because she wrote about the working poor. She wanted to live like her characters so she could more accurately describe what their lives were. So they come together. They call themselves the, uh, the Three Musketeers. And it was I'm proud to say it was a finalist for the Edgar Award uh, in 2019 as a best first novel by an American. It's a recommended read by the Arthur Conan Doyle estate. Uh, it won the uh, Silver Fountain Award at Killer Nashville, best, uh, best mystery. And uh, audiobook narrated by a former Royal Shakespearean actor, Matthew Lloyd Davies, won Audiophile Magazine's Earphone Award as Best Mystery and Thriller of 2019. Yes. So for her first book, I think I did pretty well. Uh, thank you. Uh, the second book called Queen's Gambit, Margaret's the main character there. And I took Frederick Forsyth's uh, book, 1973 book, The Day of the Jackal. I recast it. Instead of the Charles de Gaulle as the target, I made it Queen Victoria. It was during uh, her uh, Diamond Jubilee procession. And Margaret is working with an inspector with special branch of Scotland Yard to try to stop an anarchist assassin from killing Queen Victoria. The anarchists are trying to start World War One, and they think that because so many of the much of the royalty of um, of Europe was were directly descended from her. They felt like killing her might be able to start off, you know, a major war. And uh, so, and that won the book of the year with the silver, uh, the silver falchion at uh, Killer Nashville in 2020. Uh, so those are my two novels. Uh, currently, I'm residing in Scotland, oh, except right now I'm back for the holidays. But I'm doing a graduate uh, program at Napier University in, uh, in Edinburgh. And I'll be going back in about two weeks to uh, to resume that. And uh, so I'm working on a book right now uh, <clears throat> that features the, the Titanic. And there was an all-female gang of criminals called the 40 Elephants because they worked out of a pub called the Elephant and Castle. And uh, they're trying to steal a very famous book, uh, excuse me, picture um, that was on and actually on board the, the uh, Titanic. And uh, they're being <clears throat> opposed by a young man named Harry Worth, who was also a real person. He was the son of Adam Worth, who was the inspiration for Professor Moriarty. Uh, yeah, Adam Worth, uh, in later years, was uh, in prison for a while. And when he got out, he was poor and in bad health. <clears throat> and he had stolen a, a very famous painting some years back. The Pinkertons had been hired to uh, uh, re recover. And he knew that only Harry Worth was smart enough to pull that off. And so when he got out, he said, he made a deal with the Pinkertons. He said, I'll let you have the painting on three conditions. Number one, you don't have me prosecuted because uh, I don't want to go back to prison. Second, you pay me 25000 bucks, which the painting was worth much more than that. And third, he says, I don't want my son to follow my life of crime. So when he comes of age, I'd like you to make him a Pinkerton agent. And so... Alan Pinkerton, who was the head of the agency, was a huge admirer of Harry Worth. Even though he was a, a, a criminal, he never used violence. 
Uh, he was a very, a very intelligent, honorable man in many ways. He was, he was loyal to his underlings. So uh, he said, okay, uh, they, they cut that deal. So Harry Worth is, the, is hired by the White Star Line to protect the richest people in the world from card sharps and, and, and swindlers. And so I have a cat and mouse game on board the Titanic. And, of course, everything goes wrong. And so we'll see how that goes. But I'm having as fun things, anyway. As things on the Titanic tend to do. <laughs> Very much so. You um, know, pe- people who watch the movie The Titanic, I've actually read, and I, I don't know if they are the those tongue-in-cheek type jokes of, you know, I've watched The Titanic five times, and they the boat always sinks. What what is up with that? Um, it's you know, The Titanic it sinks. We all know it sinks. Um, it's, you know, that is not a happy ending. So, um, but yeah, your, your books, um, they, they are historical fiction. It sounds like, which, which is not my favorite genre. Um, but at the same time, I will say that Jack the Ripper has always been fascinating to me. Um, so I may have to check out a knife in the fog just, just because of the Jack the Ripper reference. So we, we will see what happens there. Um, okay, so what, um, I had talked to Jay a little bit about this, uh, with your publisher, Papillon Dupere, um, and he had told a, a little bit about kind of his side of, um, getting, you know, having you contact him with the idea for the Bells of Christmas. Um, what is your side of that story? What gave you the inspiration for it, um, what what made you think of of doing that? Well, um, you said I looked like Santa Claus. In point of fact, I've worked eight consecutive uh, Christmases at uh, Bush Gardens uh, in Williamsburg as one of their their uh, their uh, Santas. And <clears throat> my wife joined me the, after the first year as Mrs. Claus. So we've worked together, you know, seven uh, Christmases at Bush, and we have some great stories to tell. Um, one of my specialties is helping shy young men to propose to their girlfriends. Uh, they'll smuggle the ring up to me in advance, and when they come up together, I'll turn to the young lady and says, well, you must have been very good this year. And they'll say, why? I'll pull out the ring, and the man drops to his knee. I can just tell you right now, gentlemen, if, if you're listening, no young lady will say no in front of Santa Claus. That's so sweet. <laughs> that's, oh, that's adorable. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got all these great stories, and so kind of the idea of, you know, telling, writing about Santa, writing about Christmas, you know, and relating some of my experiences, Santa just kind of was a natural thing. Someone who is a writer, you know, you write about what you know, and, um, you know, I, I don't, and I don't really care what your religion is, what your spirituality is. Uh, the meaning of Christmas, of forgiveness, of of renewal, of uh, of hope, of faith, of something better, trying to find our better nature. I think that's universal uh, in whatever faith or spiritual path that you're after yeah. or following. And so I think those uh, stories uh, can connect with uh, just about anyone. And uh, they they give me great satisfaction in writing them. And when someone tells me that it touched their heart, that really makes me happy. So when, one thing that I was curious about um, when I was uh, was considering yesterday, I'm like, okay, what are we going to talk about? Um, 
And one thing that I am really curious about is how you get um, authors um, to submit stories for the Bells of Christmas, because I assume that you will probably be doing this again next year. Um, and I, I have a ton of author friends that listen and um, might be curious about how to submit a story um, to maybe be considered for the Bells of Christmas 3. Oh, well, well, you know, um, Jay is, is the editor, and he's kind of uh, the, 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 I'm the primary author because the very first, number one, was all my work. Number two has a, a bit of my work, but has other authors as well, which is great. It's growing, and so I'd say anyone who would, who would either has a Christmas-themed story or would like to write one uh, and have it considered, then, uh, then Jay Alchin would be the person to, to contact from your, your prior episode. And I'm, you know, though I'd say that the more the merrier, I would really felt kind of, how shall I say, a little bit embarrassed that the first one was holding my work because um, it's a message that uh, means one thing to me, might mean some, you know, a different perspective from someone else. And yet, you know, both are, are equally valid. So I think the more people that contribute their their vision, their view, uh, I think the more it's going, the more universal the uh, appeal uh, will be. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's a lot of people. I personally don't read a lot of um, anthologies, um, but I knew, you know, when Jay and I were talking about this, um, you know, last last month, month before, or something like that, uh, when we were talking about um, that, you know, when this book was coming out, and I knew that I needed to read it. Um, at the very least, I knew I needed to purchase it. Um, because, again, it is such a great cause. And I think that the idea of writing for charity, you know, yes, you have these other books that you write where you receive all of the profits as well you should, um, you know, at the same time, finding the time and finding the wherewithal to write for charity and to support this, you know, St. Jude's, people all over the world know what St. Jude's is. Um, and, you know, it's a hospital that, that helps children and helps families and they don't charge. As far as I know, they do not charge the families um, money in order to treat their children. Um, they, that is absolutely true. So, um, you know, so that is, that is such a wonderful, wonderful cause and anything that we can do to support them, um, you know, especially as authors, I mean, as authors, what you have words and being able to use those words and create this wonderful thing and help support this wonderful cause, I think is fantastic. So the more people that we can get to buy this book it's only a dollar. If you've got a dollar to spare, if you don't like reading anthologies, buy the book. You don't have to ever read it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are not. Now, granted, granted, I will say from somebody who does not read a lot of anthologies, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, I'm glad. while I am saying you don't have to read it, I will encourage you to read it because there are... Um, there are a lot of really cute stories um, in that book. I believe there's eight total. Um, mm -hmm. 
you had mentioned the um, the the middle one, um, and it is about a man named Ben who becomes a department store Santa Claus. Um, that's you know, of course, we don't want to give spoilers, um, so we're not going to say too much about the story itself. Um, but I did really, really, really enjoy that one, and um, you know, the book can be read. I would say maybe two sittings. Um, it's, it's really, it's a really easy read. It's not, um, it's not overly cerebral. Um, so you're getting these really cute Christmas stories, but your brain is not going to be overly taxed. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to finish this book feeling like you just read War and Peace. Um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you're going to finish the book feeling just a little bit closer to Christmas um, hopefully it'll give you just a little bit more, um, Christmas spirit. I know a lot of people are kind of lacking in that this year. Personally, I'm lacking in a little bit of Christmas spirit this year. Um, and it's, you know, so I, I think it's a, a wonderful story. Um, I'm really looking forward to, um, sending three lucky subscribers to my blog, um, copies this Friday. So, um, anybody who's listening, if you have not already subscribed to my blog, run over and do that be before Friday, because you'll want to, um, be a possible winner. And if I could buy one for all of my subscribers, I totally would. Um, but, um, you know, I, I do hope that, people will go and, and purchase. Um, I did purchase the first one as well. Um, but I've not read it yet, but I mm. did, but I did read the bells of Christmas too. Luckily they are standalone anthologies. <laughs> you don't have to read the first book in order to understand what's going on in the second. It's not a series. Sure. Um, they're, they're called the bells of Christmas just to kind of give you an idea of what they are, not because they are not because they build on one another, um, like a typical series would. So, um, you raised your hand. What were well, you the, to uh, say something? The, uh, the, the charity really appeals to me at Bush Gardens. One of the things I, I did every year was, um, the, there's a family support group, uh, for children with cancer. And I was always the Santa for that party. And, uh, I say that was the most important hour of the entire season. Oh, I bet. Because for that one hour, yeah, for that one hour, I didn't treat those children like patients. I treated them like normal children. And uh, that was that. my goal. Yeah. Kids, and kids a young man. Yeah. So one of my elves two years ago, he worked it with me. And afterwards, he he cried a little bit. And then he said, can I do it again next year? Oh, that's, uh, that's, that makes my heart happy. Um, okay. So one, I, um, when I mentioned earlier this week or last week that you and I were going to be chatting today, I had somebody comment that they could listen to your stories all day long. So... <laughs> I, that made me really curious. I'm like, okay, we got to see if we can get some stories. So do you have any really cute, really fun stories about being Santa Claus about this time of year? Um, 
anything about uh, studying it in Edinburgh because I've never been there, obviously, <laughs> and um, I think that's just you know super cool. So, just any any fun stories that you have that you can share with us? Okay, well, <clears throat> I can tell you one story in particular that I'd like to tell, um, and this is part of this is in the Bells of Christmas too. It's part of a story. It's not the entire uh, piece, but it's included. And, I had, uh, and it's a true story. Uh, my third day is Santa Claus. Uh, I'm sitting on the throne and I say, boy, this is really an easy job. The kids come up to me. I ask them what they want. They tell me. I say, well, I'll look into it. I never promise anything, but I'll look into it. <clears throat> and um, we do the picture. And then they leave and the family comes. We do it all over, you know. Uh, and it's, I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, But at that point, it was just, just you know, an interesting uh, seasonal job. But that changed on my third day. Uh, one of my elves comes up to me. She says, Santa, you're about to see three children, uh, a little girl and her two younger brothers. They were orphaned a year ago. And the foster family keeping them has just been approved to adopt all three. And they want you to, you to tell them. So, uh, boom, the there they are. Yeah, so there's a 12-year-old girl. And, you know, at 12, they don't really believe she's playing along for younger brothers. A 10-year-old, and they're not really sure. They You're probably not real, but just in case I'm wrong, you know, they kind of want to play along. And the 8-year-old boy, his eyes are enormous. He's totally believed, you know. So I had absolutely no idea what to do or say. So I fell back on, you know, my old standard. Well, what would you like for Christmas? And they're talking and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't hear a word they're saying. I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So they finally finished. And I says, great ideas. I'll look into it. And then I knew exactly what to say. I said, but I have something for you today. They said, what's that, Santa? I said, a family. Oh, I remember that. Oh, that and is that's so the cool moment. that that is a true yeah. story. That's a true story. Uh, and that's the moment I became Santa Claus. Oh, my gosh. You're going to make me. Oh, my gosh. You're going to make me cry. Um, I remember that. And I remember reading that in. And we're not going to say what story because we want people to read the book. <laughs> and we want them to be surprised. So we're not going to spoil. But I will say that that part in the book, you wrote that so well that I was sitting there going, oh, and then you're, and then telling it just now is I'm having the same reaction. So it's, that is so incredible that that is a true story. That's, that is absolutely amazing. Okay. Now you guys really have to buy this book. I just, <laughs> did you have to read the part so that you can come on Twitter and you can tell me that you odd the same way that I did. Um, that is, that is incredible that that is a true story. That's so great. Um, that's, I mean, it was amazing when it was part of your imagination, but now knowing that it's a true story that you were able to give these kids a family is that just, uh, that makes me so happy. Um, I'm going to be teared up the rest of the episode. Um, okay, so I made you tear up, or you made yourself tear up too. Um, yeah. Okay, so that is, and to me, honestly, that is what 
Christmas is about is that the generosity and that kindness and um you know I I wrote a blog post recently um about whether parents should deliberately teach their children that Santa is real and while I personally don't believe that we should um the main reason being Santa's not real and you're lying to your children um but I do believe that teaching your children about who the real Santa Claus is and the spirit of kindness and generosity that, that Santa teaches us. You know, Santa brings these wonderful toys to, to the children of the world. And, um, you know, so the spirit of Santa is definitely something that we should teach our kids, even if we don't teach them that the, the Santa Claus, the man that we can go to the North Pole and he lives with the elves, even though he is not real. And I don't believe that we should teach kids that he is. Um, I do believe that we should continue to teach them that type of thing. You know, the, the generosity and the, the kindness and, um, you know, all of that. So it's, that is a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm so glad to find out that that is a true story. That makes, that, just, that makes me so happy. Um, okay. So since this is a, um, kind of early Christmas week, um, special, what is your favorite part about Christmas other than playing Santa? Cause I know you were, cause I knew other you were going to say it. I knew, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, then I'd say that my favorite part after that is finding the right gift uh, for someone that lets them know that I really gave it some thought and a way of showing I know you, I appreciate you, and it's like sort of like a secret message between me and that other person is I know you well enough to know what you like. And you're important enough to me that I took that time to try to find the perfect gift. I that is that is amazing. Um, I'm the same way. I love finding that perfect gift that you know they're still going to be talking about it six months later. You know, it's not. Yeah, I really like it, but it's Christmas Day and come tomorrow, I'm just not going to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, finding finding that perfect gift is. Um, you know, and, and let me just say being the recipient of the perfect gift is pretty awesome too. Um, my father, uh, growing up, he, when I was a kid and I'm talking like pre high school, my father was, he was the kind of person that if you gave him a list of things that you wanted, he would deliberately ignore it because he wanted your gift to be a <laughs> He wanted your gift to be a surprise. So if you gave him a list of things you wanted, then your gift wasn't going to be a surprise. So my sister and I learned probably by about the age of 10 or 11 to stop giving him lists of things that we wanted because we weren't going to get that anyway. Um, but there was there were two, two gifts in particular that I remember... Um, one, not asking for, and two, just receiving this gift that was absolutely perfect. Um, one was a Christmas gift that my father had. It was after he and my mom had divorced, 
and um, he had bought me a little mini television with a VCR attachment that I could Mm -hmm. put in my bedroom and I could watch my own movies. I did not have to depend on watching whatever my parents were watching, um, my mom and my stepdad. And so, you know, having my own TV was just, you know, amazing and being able to watch my own VHS tapes. I have some younger people. Those were pre-DVD. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, just being able to watch those whenever I wanted. um, That was, I, I loved that gift so much. And then I got, he bought me, um, he actually bought each of us, um, but he bought me for my birthday one year, he bought me a pool cue um, that I still have. And I have, it's, it was only like $20 from Walmart. It was not, you know, the super, super high quality ones that you get from, you know, the, um, there's a, a Scottish company and I am blanking on the name right now, but there's a Scottish company that they make like the highest end pool cues. Mm. And, you know, if you don't own one, then you're not a real pool player. And it's, you know, it's a thing. (laughs) And, you know, but I still have mine and I have had people mention, you know, they're like, well, why don't you get rid of that one? And, you know, buy a better one. I'm like, no, (laughs) you don't understand. (laughs) My father bought this for me. I'm going to use it until it falls apart. Um, I'm like, it is sentimental value. I make sure that it stays in good quality, stays in good shape. You know, it's just, it's one of those things I'm never going to get rid of. And when my father died, um, 2000, I want to say either January, 2019 or 2020, I think it was 2020. Um, when Mm -hmm. he died a couple of months later, my stepmom was going through his stuff and she called me and she said, I came across his pool cue and I wanted to know if you wanted it and I'm like yeah and (laughs) so I now have his pool cue and mine um don't use his but I have it and you know I'm like that is probably the one thing out of his possessions that I'm just I'm really 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 glad that I have and you know, so those are the two gifts that, you know, being the recipient of the perfect gift, uh, to come back to your original point, um, that's amazing too. Um, you know, being able to give the perfect gift, um, is incredible and being able to receive when somebody has put a lot of thought into their gift for you, that means a lot too. So what, uh, speaking of receiving the perfect gift, what is, the perfect gift that you have received within, we'll give it a time limit, uh, within the past five years. Oh, within the last five years. Or a lifetime. Oh. Oh, if, you, well. if you have one, one particular gift that you just absolutely loved, you don't even have to say who gave it to you because, you know, people yeah. get jealous. <laughs> I think when I was about six years old, uh, my mom and dad, we didn't have a lot of money at the time. They bought this old beat-up bicycle at the police auction. And my dad painted it bright red. It had a seat. No, it didn't have any fenders. And, you know, it, it was a, a cheap little little bicycle. You know, it was made out of iron. The thing weighed a ton. 
And I love that thing to death. I mean, that was my bicycle, and I drove, I rode that thing until I just outgrew it. And could, you know, get the seat up higher and higher and higher, but at one point, you know, it was just too big for it. But that yeah. that cheap little red metal bicycle that my parents gave me for Christmas at one year when, or like I said, we did, they barely had two nickels to rub together. I remember we would have pancakes for uh, for, uh, for for supper sometimes, and only years later I realized that that was usually towards the end of the month because pancakes are really cheap to make and they they pretty much run out of money. <clears throat> so we that was what we were eating to get through the end of the month. And uh, But, you know, I didn't feel poor because, you know, my neighbors, we were all in the same boat. But just that little cheap bicycle was probably one of the favorite gifts I ever got. Aww. Yeah, you don't usually feel poor until later until you're an adult and you know what poor is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my my mom, you know, I tell people, you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money either. And, you know, I tell people that my mom, as part of our homeschool um, education, was uh, she would take us on field trips around the city. And, you know, she would take us to the library every two weeks to make sure that we had books to read and um, we had a lady that, uh, she had a studio, I want to say about three or four blocks from our house, um, that she ran a stained glass studio. Mm-hmm. And so we would go in and we would sit and watch her create stained glass images. Um, you know, there was a, uh, raw wood furniture place, um, about three or four blocks from our house <laughs> That, um, you know, we didn't even have a car. So it was, it all had to be within either bus routes or walking distance. Um, but they, we would go in and we would watch the guy make furniture. Um, we would take birdseed, uh, to the library and feed the pigeons, um, who were so friendly that if you did not have your glove on, they would get up in your hand and eat the food directly out of your hand. It was so uh-huh. cool. When you're 10 and you have this bird <laughs> climb, yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, so, you know, at the time, my, we didn't feel poor. You know, we we knew that we sometimes had trouble finding food um, to eat, you know. And we did a lot of food banks um, in order to get food to make sure that we were able to eat. But at the same time, we didn't feel poor, um, you know, because we were still able to do all of these super fun things. And... Uh, you know, it wasn't until years later that I'm like, oh, yeah, we were actually broke. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so when, you know, when you don't have a lot of money and you're able to still do those those wonderful things for your family and for your child, um, you know, I think that I think that your parents did good, especially since you grew up to be Santa Claus. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> So, um, we've got about 20 minutes left. Do you have any cool stories from being an army doctor that you mm. are able to, cause I knew probably some of what you did is probably classified. Um, but you know, do you have any like super cool patients that you got to work with or. Let's see. Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> at one point when I was in Heidelberg, I was the, uh, <clears throat> One time I was the acting hospital commander. The hospital commander was gone, and so um, 
I was the acting uh, commander, and it happened to be <clears throat> the 50th anniversary of the death of General George Patton in our hospital. The room he died in was right above my office, as a matter of fact, and there's a little brass plaque outside saying, you know, this is where he passed. And so on the 50th anniversary, there was a commemoration, commemorative uh, ceremony, and all the local German mayors showed up with their sashes, and I got to lay the wreath at the at the door and give a little speech, and so I was one who kind of, you know, commemorated or presided over that uh, that memorial service for General Patton, which I thought was, was kind of cool. He was an interesting guy. Uh, we, had, in fact, we paid for uh, uh, an old uh, war veteran. He had been a medic in the hospital in Heidelberg when Patton was brought in. And so he was there during the uh, Patton lasted one week. Uh, he did not have an autopsy, but we suspect he had a pulmonary embolus because the way he died, uh, and he'd had a pulmonary embolus once before after he fell off a horse and, and broke a leg, so it's probably what what did him in. But he was paralyzed from the neck down from his, his accident, and um, the uh, the old medic said that every day at 4.30, uh, Gerald Patton insisted that the doctor on duty for the night would report to him in his room, and the nurse would pour General Patton two fingers of, of, of bourbon and two fingers for the doc on duty, and they would have a drink together. And that, you know, that was like his duty. He had to sort of report to the general at four thirty to to raise a uh, to have a bourbon with the, with the general. Well, and, and if he's uh, paralyzed, so, you had to what help him? Help yeah, him yeah. The nurse that. had to pour it down. You know, I just said, uh, you know, I'd never heard that anyplace else or read that. So, I, but I said that just sounds so much like General Patton. Had to be true. That, that yeah, that that would make a lot of sense. Um, I will admit, I don't know a whole lot about General Patton, um, but um, I that is a really <laughs> it's a really cool story. Um, you know, and you when it comes to a general, you don't normally refuse um, an order like that. <laughs> That doesn't, yeah, yeah. That, you know, and that seems like something so easy to do. You know, it's not like he's asking you every day at 430, you got to kill somebody. No, it's just come have a drink with me, you know, and that's not something that you can really refuse. Yeah. Well, I do have another story, true story about four-star generals. I was stationed in the Pentagon for two years on the staff of the Army Surgeon General. I ran his office there in, in the Pentagon. I had to attend all these different meetings to represent medical command, and I was always given the two, uh, the same two instructions: take good notes, don't agree to anything. <laughs> but anyway, one time, we, we, yeah, we had a new, we had a new chief of staff of the army, and so that's a four-star. So he called all the other four-star generals in the army to his to his office for like a one-day thing. Hey, this is who I am. This is my vision. This is the direction I all want us to go, and. So I'm walking down the hall, and I decide I need to go um, use the restroom. I walk in, and there's two four-star generals at the urinal. And I thought about it for a minute. I says, there's no way I can do what I need to do when there's two four-star generals outside the stall. So I, I, I did my business elsewhere. I did, there's no way I could concentrate <laughs> on the desk. Anyway. That, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I totally get it. 
Um, okay. So, <laughs> totally, totally get it. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's called bladder shyness. It's a thing. Um, it happens. Um, so what, um, let's go back to books for just a minute. Um, since okay. we are almost out of time, what do you read in the same genre that you write in? Do you read a lot of historical fiction? I, well, I read a lot of crime uh, fiction uh, because although I do set my stories in the past, there's always a crime element, element involved. Um, so I, I, I tend to, write, to read mysteries or crime. I would say one nice thing about the, uh, the graduate program that I'm in, <clears throat> it has forced me to read outside that, that narrow lane. And uh, so I've been reading some science fiction, which I read a lot of science fiction as a kid. And then a kid to young man in the early 20s, and it kind of went a different direction. So going back now and reading uh, modern science fiction, uh, it really has, <coughs> sorry, has opened my eyes to, it's a good uh, marker of where our society is right now, what, what themes we uh, are represented. And I've, in fact, I've written a couple of short sci-fi stories myself, which one I'm rather pleased with, one. And it was, well, it could have been better, but, uh, but one I, I rather enjoyed. But it was, it was fun to get back into that particular environment. And I've also had to read what they call urban fantasy, which I had never read before, and some magical realism. And I wrote one story. I had to write a story in that genre, magical realism. And it was a lot of fun, I must say. So uh, I'm getting outside my comfort zone, and that's when you usually grow. But, you know, primarily if, when I'm stuck for something to read, I'll go with, uh, I'll go with, with crime. There was one particular uh, a Scottish author I really enjoy. He lives in the neighborhood where I'm residing in, in Edinburgh, and he frequents the same pub that I go to. I keep hoping to bump into him just to tell him what a fan I am. But his, his name is Alexander McCall Smith, <clears throat> and... Uh, he writes a, a series called the Number One Ladies Detective Agency, and it's set in uh, in Botswana. And uh, the the character, his main character, is a private detective, uh, um, a woman, and uh, she's what he, what he describes her as traditionally built, meaning she's a large, a large, healthy lady. Yeah, and uh, so the way he describes people's foibles is in a very loving, kind way. And uh, just it's he pokes fun at people, but again, not maliciously, but just kind of to point out how we're all kind of foolish in one way or the other. And uh, I just I he just has this deft touch with characterization that I, I really that I really enjoy. And I hope someday to meet him in person and say, you know, thank you for the, the gift of your stories. Well, I hope you do. Um, that's I. You know, one of the things that I love so much about the the indie book community um, is that, you know, I can do these things, you know, sit and talk with this famous author. Um, in, my, in my mind, all of you guys are famous. Um, <laughs> Bless you for that. <laughs> because you're, you're doing something that I don't consider myself capable of doing, um, you know. I, I will probably never write a book. Um, 
but I love reading yours, um, you know, and I love reading indie books and I love bringing recognition to them. And, you know, my first podcast episode uh, was almost one year ago, um, <clears throat> towards, towards the end of December of 2020, uh, was when I started this podcast and my friend Esther came on the show with me and we sat and talked about books and one of the things that we mentioned was our, you know, one, our love for signed copies. Um, but two was our love for being able to approach authors and having authors be so, be so approachable, um, the, you know, in the days of um, social media. Because when we were kids, authors were this far off, thing they were this unapproachable thing that you only saw during book signings if you were lucky enough to get into one um you know and the days of social media have made it so much easier to approach authors and and actually talk to them about how much you love their book um and you know and talk to them and and help bring other people into the fold and you know tell other people, hey, there's this really great author. He's not traditionally famous, but he's famous to us. And, um, you know, in the book community on Twitter, especially, you guys are famous to us. And, you know, for somebody who doesn't write books, being able to talk to the authors of the books that I read is amazing. Um, and I don't think I could ever say enough good things about just how wonderful I think it is. Um, that social media has made it so much easier for us to, um, to talk to you guys and, and to work with you guys and, you know, all of that super fun stuff well, um, that we get to do with books. So, um, I can't remember where I was going with that particular, <laughs> <laughs> particular story. Um, but it's, you know, but it is amazing. And I do hope that you get to meet, um, the author, um, of the books of the, that you love so much. Um, I hope that happens for you. Um, Alexander, maybe you're listening. Who knows? You should go to the pub. Um, <laughs> early next year, go to the pub. Find my friend. There you go. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we have about 10 minutes left. Um, what, you know, you have been um, an author for, how long have you been an author? Um, seven years. Seven years. Okay. So I have some. Well, I've been a writer for seven years. My first book <laughs> came out uh, three years ago. Okay. Um, so you you have been in the business long enough um, that we have some brand new authors that are working on their very first book. What mm. what is something that you would tell them, and what is you know in your few years of experience, what is something that you would like to pass on to? the next generation as you will. Okay. Um, well, I, it says I started writing at 63, and um, so it's never too late. I would, you know, looking back, I wish I'd started much earlier in life. I would have considerably larger body of work by now. But on the other hand, I, I lived a life. I mean, been to over 40 countries. You know, I've had four commands, and, you know, I've... Um, done a lot of, used to jump out of perfectly good airplanes, among other things, you know, so I've, uh, I've done a lot of uh, stuff that I use as fodder for my stories, 
So there's there's that. So I would say, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s and say, oh, you know, it's too late for me now. If you have a story inside you that's trying to come out, sit down and, you know, pound it out. It's going to suck, and that's okay. Uh, when I was learning how to ski, my ski instructor said, if you're not falling down, you're not learning. Um, and uh, there's a, when I was in my pathology residency, you know, my specialty is, is pathology. Um, I, one day I told my, one of my staff uh, pathologists, I can tell that I'm getting, I'm getting better. They said, how? So I'm making higher, higher level mistakes. You know, there's a, a Zen mantra that says you will try, you will fail, you will try again, you will fail again, but you will fail better. And one of my favorite books on writing is by Stephen King on writing a, a memoir. The first half of the book was how hard it was for him to get started. The last half, there's some very good advice on writing, practical advice. But the first half is just like how his life really, really sucked. Uh, he was teaching English uh, at this high school, and he was submitting all these manuscripts. They all got rejected. At one point, he was so poor, his child had a fever of 102, and his, the transmission in his car went out. He had to decide, do I take my son in to be seen by a doctor or to get my car fixed so I can go to work on Monday? I mean, that's where, that's where he was. And his wife took his manuscript to carry out of the trash, literally out of the trash, sent it in, and that changed, changed his life. But uh, he had this, when he started off writing, he started off writing like 12 or 13 years old, and he put a nail on the wall, uh, you know, so far, sticking out. And every time he got a rejection notice, he would take the rejection notice from some magazine or a short, short story he sent. He would put it on the nail. He just kept writing. Finally, one day, there was so much weight on the nail, it fell out. So what did he do? He got a bigger nail. <laughs> he kept And he kept pounding out stories. So I would say, uh, write. No, you're going to suck. Keep writing. Then find somebody whose opinion you trust, who doesn't love you, doesn't owe you money, and ask them to read it and tell you what they think. Uh, and Neil Gaiman had some great advice. He said, if someone tells you that something doesn't work, they're probably right. If they try you why it, if they try to tell you why it doesn't work and how to fix it, they're probably wrong. I mean, you're the writer. You knew what your vision was. And so uh, say thank you very much for that. But if they tell you something doesn't work, then especially if two or three people tell you that, then, yeah, they're probably right about that at the very least. And <clears throat> when I give a manuscript or a story to someone to be a beta reader I have uh, I give them my mnemonic C-U-B-E-R Cuber, C-U-B-E-R and I say when you're reading this if you fall out of the story you know something breaks your concentration look at that piece or whatever you're at and that you've lost your train of thought and I want you to categorize why one of the four one of the five reasons. C, were you confused? Like, you know, Mary and Sally were having lunch when her boyfriend called. Well, was it Mary's boyfriend or was it Sally's boy? You know, confusing. Something that, you know, wasn't clear. <clears throat> Too unbelievable. Having 20-year, 120-pound guy who just takes out a 300-pound football player. Unless earlier on I talked about that he has a seventh-degree black belt in, in Taikido, you know, Taekwondo or something like that, you know. <clears throat> okay, unbelievable. 
Third is boring, and usually boring means there's there's no there's no conflict. <clears throat> there has to be some tension, something in doubt, something at risk. Okay, so boring. Then uh, editing, maybe I have the same sentence reworded two or three different times. Just need to tighten it up. You know, overall it's good, but just need to tighten it up. And the last thing is uh, repetitive. I'm using the same words over and over again. Um, too close together, or maybe it's the third time I mentioned the heroine's flashing green eyes, you know, in, in that chapter, something like this, oh, you know, it just kind of rings that bell, hey, this is too much of a good thing, so C-U-B-E-R, and uh, I've shared that with some writing professors, and they all liked it, said, yeah, that, that's a pretty good mnemonic to work with, uh, it gives me an idea on how I need to approach that to, to make it stronger. So I'm not just like, oh, it didn't work for you. Well, that's great. You know, that doesn't tell me much. So it gives me some focus, but still leaves a large, a large latitude for me to figure out uh, what to do, what to do next. Okay. But the other thing I say, there in the dictionary, there's about three thousand two hundred words invented by Shakespeare. I didn't invent a single word. You know, I'm like a flower arranger. I didn't grow the flowers. I got all these words, and I'm arranging them for an effect. And if someone doesn't like something I write, I don't take it personally. If you have an idea how I can arrange those words better, please let me know. Uh, I'm open to that. I, I, I take criticism well. Um, so, yeah, be proud of your work. Give it your best. But if somebody comments on your work, they're not commenting on you. They're just saying, this particular thing you wrote at this time, whatever reason, doesn't work for them. But also understand that, you know, they make more than, more than one flavor of ice cream. My first book is, is average is like 4.5 stars, you know, really good. I had one guy give me a one-star review, and his comment was, oh, you use real people in a fictional story. You're not supposed to do that. And I said, okay. And I looked at some other reviews this guy did, and like one book, he gave it two stars. And he said, like on page 127, the third paragraph, second line, they ended a sentence with a preposition. That's all they had to say. So, you know, there's just some people they like, you know, they like to throw stones. That makes them feel better. So, you know, just take it all in stride. Uh, I met uh, the, the writer David Balducci at a signing event, and I mentioned, oh, you know, I'm a writer too. And, yeah, that's great. And I, I don't think he was being polite. Uh, but I did mention about reviews, and he said, never read your reviews. He said, the good ones will make you lazy. And the bad ones will make you doubt yourself. He says, write the best that you can. And when your editor says it's good enough, you send it. And then write the next story. I'll let it go. Okay. Well, I thank you. That is amazing advice. Um, and I will say that we are about out of time. Uh, my little recorder is about to go off. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for coming and visiting with me for um, Christmas week. And talking about your book, uh, The Bells of Christmas 2. Um, again, Thank you. head over to the Picky Bookworm and subscribe, everybody, so you can get in on um, this giveaway. I will be giving away three copies um, of The Bells of Christmas 2 on Christmas Eve. So um, be sure to go and check that out. Again, Bradley, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure chatting, and uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.